Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. It is sunny again in Sweden. I'm here with Yusi Roine, and what's up? Hey, Toby, it's sunny also in Finland, and, and I'm, I'm super happy with this. So two things, what's up? Uh, I've been barbecuing on the balcony, so I, I bought this new fancy um, barbecuing system last year, so now I finally get to use it. So yesterday, um, I went to the store, and I got grilled salmon. So I did uh, teriyaki glazing on it with some chili cream cheese and sweet potato fries. And then we ate that with the family on the balcony and the sun was shining in the evening, a glass of wine. So that was probably the highlight of this week. But the, uh, the real thing, besides on what I've been eating lately, is this, um, this small red Lego bicycle. And when I say small, I mean like super small. It's not something you build. It's, it's like a ready-made piece you get, get in one of those sets. So my two-year-old, he saw one and really, really wants to have it. And as you might recall, he's bilingual, so he speaks in Finnish and English. So he often says, Daddy, I want this. I really want this. So I go on Google. I start researching, where do I buy this? Anything for the kid, right? And I found out it's an original piece from a Lego set from 1981. So So how did he come across that as a two-year-old? Like, Did you see this down the street or... Would no, yeah, he, he actually saw that at the daycare. So the daycare is closed now, but before it mm-hmm. closed, he was still there. And some parent brought in their old Lego in there, and he was digging through that on the last day at the daycare. He found that, really wanted to take that home. And I was like, no, we cannot take this home. This might be somebody else's. Now he wants to get one. And, and mm-hmm. it's been a couple of weeks since he saw it, and he still keeps talking about this. So, <laughs> so my so my next quest after we're done with the recording is to, is to go on eBay and try to source not one but two because the one he might break, but then I would have a backup copy. Let, let's just hope they are not in mint condition because that usually comes with a pretty hefty uh, price tag as well. Yeah, I'm I'm willing to bid up to two dollars or so. So let's see how that goes. <laughs> So how about for you? So for me, I haven't done any Lego research at all, which I'm happy about. Uh, But with everyone working remotely these days, including a lot of people in my own house, the kind of work from home situation has changed a bit. I've been working from home for about seven years. It's never been a problem with disturbances or focus or anything like that. But now when the entire family is home even more, Uh, I realized I need to build a door for my home office uh, and kind of prove to myself that I am as handy as I believe. So that's going to be my next project. And obviously, I need to build in some kind of IoT thing here, like smart locks and LED indicators, whether I'm busy or not, and some cool stuff and probably a projector somewhere uh, projecting some status on the wall. Or I don't know. I just want to you know, do something fun with that. But the main project ahead is building a door so the family will not be disturbed when I'm recording a podcast like this, but on the contrary as well, um, that you guys don't hear my kids screaming, uh, stepping on Legos. So uh, hopefully a mutual benefit there. 
sounds sounds like a good plan. And as they say about smart locks, uh, they say the same about encryption. If you can't find a good one, you just create your own and it will be even better. Yeah, and maybe I have to do that because I, I do have a smart lock on my front door. Um, unfortunately, last year during winter, the batteries died and we were not able to actually exit our house because even the inside of the lock is... Uh, driven by electronics so we could not open and go outside of the house so if there would be a fire we'd be stuck in the house and just had to smash a window or something so we had to wait two days for someone to come and from the outside kind of burst open uh, the door for us um, meanwhile of course we weren't stuck in the house we could use the balcony doors and terrace doors but we cannot lock them from the outside so we we kind of had to stay confined and uh, so my experience with smart locks are you know, they're convenient, but I mean, if your battery runs out, yeah, anything can happen. Then you're done. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we've got a smart lock in our summer cabin and it's super convenient because you can remotely add one-time pin codes in there. So if you need to let like the maintenance guy in, you can remotely add this one, two, three, four pin code, uh, send the message to the maintenance person and, and that person gets in once using the pin and then it locks and there's a different pin from there on. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is actually great. And I, I kind of understand we're rumbling into a different topic here, but I, I also did this recently when we were in, in Thailand on a vacation earlier this year before the entire pandemic thing broke out. Um, and we did exactly that. We had people coming over, my parents, they came over to water flowers and we had to open the door and I could just do that from the app and grant them a one-time access pass. And that was pretty cool. Like just in time in Azure. So just in time access, but for my, my front door. Exactly. Role-based access control for home. There you go. Alrighty. So today's topic is succeeding with Azure DNS. And, and before we actually dive into what Azure DNS is and how it works and what the, what the capabilities are, let's talk a bit about DNS or domain name system. What's your first memory in life on when you were exposed to DNS and how, why did you hate it so much? Okay, so that's a good question. I, I can't recall my first memory um, exactly, but I, I guess it was when I bought my own first few domain names, you know, early 2000s, something like that. Uh, I didn't have bad, you know, memories from that, only positive memories because I sold the domain names with a pretty <laughs> nice profit, but I didn't manage the DNS. I just went and bought them and then I sold them on. Um, you know, so I, I don't have any war stories of mishaps with DNS because back then I was mainly doing developments. So I, I was never in charge of ensuring that the DNS and lookups worked um, and these days when I am, you know, responsible for these things, the tools are so good. So I can just click a button or run a CLI and, and kind of trust that the system works. So what about for you? So for me, I was initially, I, I think I had my first mishaps with DNS, like forgetting to add uh, a dot in the correct field and everything breaks down. I think that was as early as 1989. And obviously, I wasn't working then, but I, I had a hobby of, of doing whatever with IT and computers. And I, I had no idea what DNS is or was at the time. So somebody told me, yeah, you need to modify this, this, and this, and add this field in there to make that service or computer reachable from this thing called the internet, as it, as it was already then. 
and later on, I think I spent like a week to read up on the official implementation of the DNS standards, the RFCs, just to understand that, okay, I need to know how this works out. And I went to Wikipedia before we started recording to, to look up the history of DNS, because this is not something I keep in my head anymore. And the first DNS was created in 1983 by a person called Paul Mokapetris. And it was called Jeeves at the time, and a later implementation was called Bind, the Berkeley Internet Name Domain. And, and later on, people just started calling it DNS. But Bind, obviously, on, on Unix and later Linux, uh, platforms was quite often used and in a sense it was quite complex at the time but it was also relatively easy you had a bunch of text files you would edit those and then you would have a background service a, da a daemon service that would serve whatever you had in those files that was the essence of it back in 1991 or so yeah just just for uh, trivia and, and for the curious, when you say you started playing around with DNS in 1989, I was five years old. I didn't know what a computer was at that time. I was at the ripe age of, let me let me calculate, 12 years, almost. Well, there you go. Th almost so tw 12 th years and becoming a magician with DNS, that's impressive. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. <laughs> I, I know a bit, little bit better now when I'm 43 now. But at the time, it was more, more about, I need to get something done. I have no idea what I need to do, but I know what I want to achieve. And you kind of just stumble through all the different problems. So the first Microsoft DNS server was introduced in beta uh, with Windows NT Server 3.51. And that was in mid-1995. And I was working for a Nordic company at the time. And one of my responsibilities was maintaining uh, some of the Unix and VAC systems. And then somebody brought in this NT 3.51 server and said, this is the future. And, and we needed to install the DNS server bits in there. And then I realized, oh, this is something I had a look six years ago. I think I know how this works. How hard can it be, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then in NT Server 4, 1996-97, we actually got the real DNS server. And, and since then, that's been part of the core services of, of any local area network that runs uh, a Microsoft domain, be it an NT domain or an Active Directory domain. Yeah. So if, if someone today asked me, what, what is the DNS? I would probably just say um, it's, it's a name that... Uh, pings an IP address or points to an IP address uh, for whatever purposes and commonly used, of course, for URLs, www.microsoft.com, domain name, um, stuff like that. But so that's a, you know, that's a DNS. But then what is the Azure DNS? And, you know, what does that bring to the table? Because that's the topic of today, uh, specifically the, the Azure DNS, which is, an offering that you can get in your Azure subscription and, and you set up, right? Exactly. So I've been using different sort of DNS services for ages now. I used to host them myself, but then you would need two or three or four DNS servers to keep it highly available because if one fails and you don't have any backups running, 
then everything fails for your services typically. And then you would have internal DNS servers for your Active Directory and perhaps external ones elsewhere in a DMZ or, or within a hosting company. So now with Azure DNS, what I can do in Azure, I can create public uh, zones. And within those public zones, I can add whatever entries I need to advertise that I do manage this and this domain and it has this and these addresses. So as an example, I run my blog on jussiroine.com. So that's the DNS domain. And that's hosted on Azure DNS as a public zone. But then I also have a couple of additional um, host names uh, for getting the VPN connectivity to home. That's one. Perhaps testing on something like dev dot domain dot com that I can later use for Azure web apps or Azure functions or something else. So Azure DNS is a platform as a service service and it allows me to introduce public zones with all of the records I need in there and it supports all the standard based DNS capabilities. All right, cool. Um, so how do you go about creating or setting this up? If I'm you know, an avid user of the CLI, PowerShell, Portal, whatever. How do I, what is the standard way to set up Azure DNS? Because it's it's kind of a, a core level service that can lay the foundation for a lot of the things you offer to your customers or, or that you have yourself. Um, you know, what's the way, back in the day when you described from 1995 or, or 83, uh, you know, long way back, you had text files, you were mapping things. And how do you set up Azure DNS today uh, in contrast to to you know that legacy mode so so back in the day with the legacy you would open open a a terminal session to the server you would uh open a text based text editor or terminal based text editor perhaps vi or vim then you would edit something and then you would spend 4 hours figuring how do i exit the editor because it was too complex and it still yeah, i still i still have that problem <laughs> yeah and and uh nowadays with azure dns I often start with the portal because I already know I need to add two zones. I might register a new domain. So I'm purchasing a domain from a third-party server. And I check that the domain is free. I select, oh, I want it to be called like this. And then I will intro those zones in Azure DNS for myself. So I'll create a new public zone in Azure portal. And then Azure allocates me with a bunch of Azure DNS servers and their IP addresses. So the third-party company that sells me the domain and allows me to purchase one, they will request the IP addresses of the DNS servers that will be primarily in charge of, of these zones. So they will be the authoritative uh, servers for these zones. So portal, definitely just get started with that because it's a no-brainer in setting those up. But obviously, if you use PowerShell or Azure CLI and you know you need to quickly add 17 different domains or subdomains or host names, then it's obviously easier to create a script and, and add or remove or fiddle with anything you have in there. Yeah. So and speaking of that, you know, kind of automation, one thing that I see at large scale deployments and when we have repetitive tasks that we need to do, um, sometimes we use PowerShell or CLI to script that. Sometimes you want an API. Does the Azure DNS also come with an 
API for one to spin at that angle and you have some existing code that is doing something and as part of that process you want to update something on the DNS can you do that from code as well yeah yeah definitely and one of the things that I started doing with, with one of my IoT based solutions so at home, I have a dynamic IP address. I think I mentioned this before, maybe 20 episodes ago. Uh, and the dynamic IP address, it's a public IP, and I never know if it changes. So I have a simple IoT solution that pings an Azure function whenever it figures the IP address changed. And the Azure function uses the Azure DNS APIs to update those public zones for me. So when I'm on the road, if I'm sitting in a cafe, I need to VPN home, then I can always uh, trust that the DNS address will point me to the correct dynamic IP address that points home. Right. So kind of your own dynamic DNS um, hardware, if you will, for the IoT thing. Yeah, I tried all the possible predefined services. Some of them are free. Some some of them will cost you something. They have these different quite flaky client tools that allow you to automate things. But I figured I can do this with five lines in Azure Function using PowerShell well, yeah. for seven lines. But at the end of the day, it's super easy to create. And the DNS APIs are very nicely documented. So if you go to docsmicrosoft.com, you look up the APIs, they have predefined examples for all the possible use cases on how you need to fiddle with your DNS settings. Yeah. So something that comes to mind when we talk about Azure DNS is uh, for transparency, I have worked with Azure DNS a little bit, but most of the time I actually use something called Cloudflare. Um, And this is because I haven't always been on Azure. I have multi-cloud setups. I have different websites hosted on different platforms. And for me, the easiest thing to manage all of that in a single place was to use a third-party DNS service like Cloudflare, where I get pretty much the same capabilities. So if I already have that, should I look at Azure DNS? Or you know, what is the is there a differentiator between Azure DNS and Cloudflare or any other third-party service? Is it some kind of native integration point with Azure DNS and whatever you have in Azure? Or is it, you know, who gets some stukit, um, if you remember the, the Swedish word for it doesn't matter? Yeah, so definitely Cloudflare, one of the best ones out there. So you definitely can continue using that. And often I see customers uh, dividing their investments in DNS to perhaps two different providers. They might be using Azure DNS for internal things perhaps for test dev environments. And then when they run something in production, they might want to offload certain things to a specialist service that only focuses on certain things like fixing and optimizing DNS and doing caching, just like Cloudflare does. Uh, The other point here is though that with Azure DNS now, you can get this critical infrastructure service as part of everything else you have in Azure So when you fiddle with things, you don't need to branch out to a third-party service, perhaps pay for that too, and then figure out how do I programmatically modify this when this and this happens in Azure. So that also points to the benefit that when you use Azure DNS, everything is, is neatly integrated together. So you can do a logic app, for example, 
that updates something in Azure DNS when you get an event coming from your database, for example. And this might be a bit more trickier to build if you use a third-party thing, because they might have an API, it might work differently, and then you need to start building integration, possibly between two different clouds at the same time. Yeah. So one thing that that strikes me is that I that I remember, I don't know if it's still the case, but I believe so, is Cloudflare... Uh, for example, come with a DNSX, you can get the added layer of, of force protection, if you will, on the domain name. And I recall Azure didn't have that um, on their DNS back in the day. Is this still the case that there is no support for DNSSEC? That's a great question. I didn't look this up. So for me, when I use Azure DNS, I often just need the zone in there. And since I offload a lot of the things to Office 365 and whatnot on on doing my spam filtering and all of that. I've kind of resorted to trusting what's in there mm -hmm. at the same time. But this is probably something we need to look into and on a next or a future episode on Azure DNS Part Two, succeeding with Azure DNS Sec, we might we might have looked up into this as well. But if yeah. somebody who's listening in on this and knows for the better. Feel free to ping us on, on Twitter or LinkedIn uh, on your opinions on this. I, I just found the documentation on Azure DNS as we were mm -hmm. talking, and it says now Azure DNS does not currently support DNSSEC. Uh, and in most cases, you can reduce the need for DNSSEC by consistently using HTTPS or TLS in your applications. So if, if you are consistent with applying TLS and HTTPS enforcement on your actual applications, then the... the need for DNSSEC might reduce. Um, I like the capability in Cloudflare where you just tick a box and say, always enforce this. Um, and then, of course, now in, in Azure DNS, if it doesn't have that, then you can do this from your application endpoint. And speaking of applications, what are the, what's the experience like? Because I create a, a lot of app services, web apps, function apps, and whatever. Some of them I tie with domain names, obviously, because I use Cloudflare, I use that. But if you use Azure DNS, how do you tie that domain name or DNS to your app service? Is this like an integrated experience now? It's quite well integrated. And if you use Azure Portal and you're creating a new web app, so you might first create a new resource group, you create a new web app in there, you, you make the app plan. And then when the web app, web app is up and running, there's the domains uh, selection in the blade, you click on that and you type in whatever domain name you know you already own. And there's a pointer to a third party, I think it's GoDaddy, uh, for you to purchase the domain. But if you already purchased the domain, and in some countries, if you want the local country's top level domain, like for Finland, it's .fi, for Sweden, it's .se. If you want that, you, you might want to use the local uh, possibly government-driven uh, registration service, or you can use any of the global ones. So once you have the domain, then you need to go to your DNS and add a verification field. And for app services, it's typically a TXT record. So it allows you to put whatever free text uh, within your domain in the public zone. So when the web app asks that, do you really own uc.fi domain? You say, yes, I do. Then it says, okay, please go to your DNS, in this case, Azure DNS, add this TXT record in the zone, 
and it needs to say this, and it gives you this random gibberish that you add in there. And that's just for verification that now the web app can ping and see that you added what it requested. Otherwise, I could say, well, I might want to use google.fi as my domain. And if there's no verification, nobody would know what's the real one to simplify this a bit. Yep. And, right. and, and once you put the TXT record, you can, you can click verify on the web app. It verifies. And then the web app will still uh, listen in on, on HTTP queries on the old address, the internal address, as well as the addresses you've added to the domains. Yep. All right. That makes sense. Uh, so it, it sounds like something I definitely need to explore. Um, one thing that comes to mind is, uh, while I haven't tried this with Azure DNS, I can imagine that most of the things I have today is in Azure, whereas for me, then the, the Cloudflare DNS is outside of Azure. I could see the combination here of putting also my DNS stuff inside of Azure as a kind of a one-way point for me to have access to everything I manage, including all the domains. So maybe the kind of ease of use of having everything at hand in the single place might be a benefit. Uh, and maybe here I can see the, the request logs and audit logs and stuff like this. Because uh, right now I have to go over to Cloudflare and see if I have you know, some of our cloud operation stuff or my personal stuff I also have in a different Cloudflare for the blog, for example. And I can see there's you know, X amount of requests per month. And then if I would have this at my fingertips in the Azure portal instead, maybe this would actually make things easier for me. Yeah, and obviously you still have the option to run your own VMs, run your own DNS servers on Windows or Linux. But I don't see a huge benefit in that anymore because DNS is such a crucial service, but it's also quite unexciting, if you will. Once it's up and running, you don't really need to care about it that much. Mm -hmm. So operating these VMs, patching them, I don't think anybody has the time anymore for that. So using a ready-made service, Cloudflare, Azure DNS, something else, I've used for about 10 years for a lot of my public public services. I've used uh, a German service called gratisdns.de. Mm -hmm. And I think the price was one euro per domain per year. No, so it's... It, it, it was I should fairly, be able to fit that in my budget as well. I yeah, think. it was fairly affordable, uh, but the, the whole experience in there is, is like going back to 1985 again. It's almost text-based, but it just works. Nostalgia. But I, yeah, but I started migrating most of my domains to Azure DNS now because then I can have everything in the same place under the same management tools and in the same billing and invoices and all that. So, yeah. so one of the other things with Azure DNS, which is interesting, is Azure Private DNS. And this allows you to use the same service, but it allows you to provide DNS services for VNets, for virtual networks. And as part of those virtual networks, you might typically have virtual machines in there. So when you spin up, let's say, a Windows server that hops into the VNet, and when the Windows server boots, it will ask, where's my DNS server? So instead of using a public DNS server, you might use an Azure private DNS. So all of the zones you add in the private DNS will only be visible for that VNet and not the public internet. Okay, so it's, it's 
if I have a huge cloud infrastructure that I need to manage at my company or, or some of my partner companies or something like that, and I need to have better looking domain names or, you know, tie the IP addresses of the VMs and whatever it is to, to more readable names, private DNS might be a thing because it's not publicly accessible outside of the VNet. Exactly. And then Perfect. you don't have to resort into maintaining your custom hosts files or trying to recall what was the IP address of that file server I had running here and there. Again, and with I, the nostalgia and the host file. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, this also applies if you have a hybrid setup. So you have something in on-prem, you might have your internal DNS server, but then in the cloud, you have the side-to-side -side VPN connectivity or the express route connectivity between on-prem and the cloud. And now you somehow, within a VM in the cloud, you need to resolve something you have in the internal network in on-premises. So Azure Private DNS might be the option here as well. All right. I already see some use cases for that in some of the setups I, I operate. And I've resorted to different ways of solving it. Most of the time, it's because it's not really readable names. Uh, but for some of the things, this makes perfect sense. And one thing that I was looking for before is I want to kind of tie these domain names or the DNS entries on all the resources I have, but I don't want that to be accessible so nobody else can ping them, but only inside the VNet. And obviously this is exactly that. So this is a great tip. Yeah. Um, and, and what you else can, can you do? <laughs> uh, you can configure your VMs, your virtual machines to automatically register with that VNet DNS meaning that you spin up a new VM, uh, let's say it's a Windows server, and once it's provisioning, it, you're, you're getting the out-of-box experience where you configure all the, all the basic settings. It will ask, what's the name of the server? And, and you will type in file server 01, because everybody wants it to be 01, not just file server 1, because you might anticipate to have 98 more of those. So once you type in file server 01, then if you have auto registration enabled in the VNet and you're using the Azure private DNS, then your VM will automatically register itself in the private DNS in the private DNS zone so that all the other services in the VNet will then automatically find the VM as well. All right, cool. So what do I need to kind of manage the Azure DNS. So usually going back in the day, we use different tools. Like you said, you re were remoting into a server and you change stuff. Um, is there something, we, we talked about the Azure CLI, we talked Power, PowerShell and the Azure portal. Are there other tools, maybe not to manage the, the CDN service because, or the DNS service, because you do that with those tools, but what other tools might be good to have in your tool set when you're working with this and you're gonna check if things actually work because you might make a change and then nothing works and they need to figure out why. So what, what you need to have in your tool basket? So one of my favorite tools, obviously, NS Lookup, the name server lookup. And that's been around since 1995 on Windows, I think. Relatively easy to use for, for basic use cases. And that's what you use to check up on what does this DNS server know about this and this zone or this and this record. And on Linux, obviously, you can use Dig. That's typically what's, what's used in there. But then I've, I've also started using um, a free service called dnsmap.io. And that's highly useful if you don't want to manually check globally 
that I changed this and this value in my DNS settings, when will the app service actually see that change so that I can continue with whatever I'm doing now? So dnsmap.io, you just put in your domain name, and that will globally check how that change has propagated, how it has traveled through the different public DNS servers. Right. So it's also a, a bit more visual than just running a command line. Yeah, it shows you a global world map, so that makes it cool as well. Pretty visual, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and of, of course, you can use NSLOOKUP. You can connect with the, with the Google DNS servers, the 8.8.8 or .8, or the Cloudflare's 1.1.1.1. Connect mm-hmm. with those and query directly, do you know about this change I did five minutes ago on my own DNS? And if it's already there, then you know it propagated quite fast and you can continue on your configuration. Sounds good. So on, on cost, finally, and, and this is one of the things that I really like about Azure DNS, it's quite affordable. How much do you pay for Cloudflare now for DNS services? Uh, that's free. It's free. Okay, so that's yeah. super cheap. So, that, so that's pretty cheap. Uh, they have different tiers. Um, I am, for some of my things on the enterprise or pro plan, whatever it's called these days, I don't recall exactly what I pay for that. Um, but I do have a paid plan, but you can set up uh, DNS for free. If you own the domain names, um, you can do that. Um, so then you get the, like the basic functionality. Um, but yeah, I don't have a side-by-side comparison in my head of you know w- what services are included in that. But I know the, the basic stuff like tying your Azure website DNS to, to this name, yeah, that's for free. So Azure DNS, I actually had to look up the price because I forgot what the exact cost is. So Azure DNS pricing is 0.422 euro per zone per month for the first 25 DNS zones. And anything beyond 25 zones, so if you have more than 25 domains typically, will be 0.085 euro per zone per month so about eight cents per zone per month for anything beyond 25 zones and about 42 cents per zone per month for the first 25 ones and in addition you pay for traffic Uh, so for the first 1 billion dns queries you pay about 0.3 euro per million queries so Mm -hmm. about 33 cents per million DNS queries. If we start using this for the podcast, then we need to be aware and set up some budget alerts in, in Azure cost management to ensure we don't go over a billion. Exactly. Uh, I, know, I, I, I would track pro- of costs. I would propose that we, we put a um, budget alert at 60 cents. So when we are over 1 million, but not quite 2 million, then it would send us an email and we can say, okay, we're fine. We, we can afford this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I checked on my own domain, so so my blog at jussirone.com gets a nice bit of traffic every day, so I assume it also gets some Azure DNS queries at the same time, and this is costing me about 50 cents a month. So roughly I'm paying 42 cents a month on on the domain itself and about 8 cents on the DNS queries per month. Yeah, that's quite affordable, I'd say. Yeah, so it's about six euro a year, and and I don't have to worry if it works, if it runs, if it's secure, it just runs. 
But obviously, if you have 2,000 different domains, 2,000 times 6 euro, that quite quickly starts to add up. Yep. So is there anything else on your mind about Azure DNS? I think we kind of covered the, you know, the, the most important aspects of what it is and what it isn't. But is there anything else on your mind before we jump to the last thing? No, I think we covered quite this quite neatly. And one of the fun things with DNS is that it's, it's a basic service. It has a lot of functionality nowadays and different services rely on DNS in different ways. So it pays to pay attention to, to understand how it works, what the basics of DNS are, regardless if you use Azure DNS or something else. But at the same time, once you get it up and running, it's something you don't have to worry about anymore. It runs, you tweak it from time to time if you need to. But other than that, it's, it's a bit like water utility services at home. When you need cold water, you just turn on the tap and you get cold water. You don't need to worry how much it costs because typically it is so affordable that you just use it when you need it. Yeah. All right. Makes sense. So final bit, word of the day. Uh, the thing I've been been waiting for a long time, the entire day, to figure out what is the Finnish word of the day. And and here we have it. And this is quite relevant because uh, in recent weeks, we've been hiking and trekking with the family quite a bit. Our hikes and treks are quite easy, though. I often have to carry the two-year-old on the backpack, and then we have the two older boys. They luckily walk, walk or, or trek themselves now. So one of the things that I always bring with me when we go hiking and we often stop for lunch is the Finnish kuksa. Kuksa. Uh, and specifically, this needs to be a gnarl kuksa. So it's made from a solid block of wood and it's cup. So you use that only when you're trekking and hiking and camping. You never use it at home, never. And, and there's this historical saying that your right of passage is that when you create your own, so you purchase a piece of wood or you find one from, from the woods on, on, on your hikes, and then you actually carve out your kuksa, your, your wooden mug out of that piece of wood. And the one that I have, uh, that was a present that I got uh, in 2000 for my, uh, for, for my birthday in April. So 20 years ago, and I still use it every month, at least twice when we go out. So they are quite long lasting un unless you lose one. But so you're, you so you're saying that you didn't make your cooks air. No, no. So I, I haven't done my rite of passage yet. <laughs> but now, now when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, I really need to do one. Perhaps but it's for, time. Yeah, but for me, I, I might need to source like a lot of wood because I, I need to have a couple of practice mugs first before I, I, I'm able to do one that I'm satisfied with. Yeah, because you're going to have to use it every time you go hiking. Oh, yeah, and, and if it looks super ugly or, or if it looks or, like... Or if it spills your coffee by default when you pour it up, then it's not going to be a good thing. Yeah, or if it looks like some <laughs> something a five-year-old could make, and, and even a five-year-old could make a better one, then mm, yeah, let me not use this. <laughs> but you can also buy an industrial factory-made one. It's quite okay. It's super cheap, but it also looks very factory-made. It, it, it's not personal. So yeah. if you ever want to get one, one way is, is to travel to Lapland, the Swedish or Finnish Lapland, 
and there's these small shops and you can actually order one with your custom, custom carvings and reindeer bone on the handle and all the fancy things. It will be more expensive, but at least it's more personal and it's unique. All right. It's very relatable. As you know, I have said a, a couple of the episodes that I've been hiking and been you know, going out on solo trekking or trekking with the family, um, sleeping in the woods. And you know, this is one of the things, uh, kind of create your own uh, cutting boards, create your own cups. Uh, I never did a kuksa. In Sweden, this is called kjosa, so almost similar. Um, so I'm definitely going to have to uh, to take on that project as well. And then we can compare who's making the coolest kuksa. Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm up for the challenge. So later today, when I'm done with sourcing the tiny little red Lego bicycle for the two-year-old, I will then start figuring out where I can buy a piece of wood so that I can actually start carving this. I'll, I'll send you a piece of wood from one of my hikes. I, I have plenty. Excellent. But I also need to buy... Uh, a proper knife so that I can I can get something done as well. I, I cannot help you with that. That would probably be some question from the postal office if I send you a knife. <laughs> True. So what's the word of the day in Swedish? So the Swedish word I have on my mind is Pang um, And in Sweden, we're not getting right to the point. We're getting boom on the beetroot. Of course. So because, yeah, why not? That's that's what we say. Pang Let me Let me try. Pang yeah, that's pretty accurate. So pang means beating or, or booming? Uh, boom or like a, a loud noise. Um, yeah, we use that word for a lot of things. So pang can mean when you shoot a gun, boom, yeah. boom, or a pew, pew, or I don't know what the English noise or sound is, but that's pang. Is it pang, pang? Is the Swedish one? Or uh, pang sort of uh, is what we say when we say, oh, that was a loud boom. So yeah. pang is like a, a boom noise. Okay, and, and why is the beetroot, the red betan in there? How should I know? <laughs> <laughs> it's Swedish. <laughs> it's just the way yeah. we do things. <laughs> yeah, so this, this brings back memories from those never-ending Swedish grammar lessons at school. So I read Swedish for 12 years at school, and I regret 11.5 years of those, but the <laughs> six months was, was quite nice. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like Swedish. It's a, you know, it's it's an interesting language, but I am speaking more English than I am speaking Swedish. So I am as confused as you are for some of these words. But <laughs> perfect sense. Yeah. And I think that concludes all my thoughts I had on Finnish, Swedish and the Azure DNS. Yes. So thanks for tuning in on succeeding with Azure DNS. And until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.